Well, friends, how does heaven and the life to come affect your life right now? Last week I started the sermon by asking how you got here. And we considered for a few minutes how the decisions that we make in our lives actually affect where we go. And, and we make decision after decision to go here from there and, and eventually end up here. That was a question of the past. This morning I want to start by asking you a question of the future. How does heaven and the world that is to come, eternity, the new heavens and the new earth, affect your life today? Where are you headed and what does it do to you right now? What do you think about heaven? Maybe you're so busy running to and fro, doing life that, that, that you very rarely find yourself thinking about heaven. Maybe recently you've, you've lost a loved one. And so the, 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 the reality of heaven and the world to come is very, very present in your life. And something you've really had to consider lately. Maybe you're, you're a child this morning. And, and your life is so full of, of life right now at a young age. That you haven't really thought too much about heaven or death or, or, or the life to come. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian. Maybe you've heard Christians talk about this idea of heaven. This, this place where when Christians die they go to be with the Lord. Maybe you've heard Christians talk about a new heaven and a new earth, that, that Jesus is going to return and, and establish a place of paradise once again. And you've thought, well, that's a silly notion. We have no proof of that. We have no scientific observations that that's ever going to happen. What do you think about heaven? Robert Murray McShane, who was a godly, one of the most godly evangelical pastors and evangelists, of the 1800s. Well, in January of 1839, he lay on his sickbed. Illness had punctuated much of his life, a life that had no doubt been lived for the glory of God and for the good of God's people, but a life that would eventually come to an end, an illness that would claim him at the young age of 29. For Robert Murray McShane, eternity was ever before him. To the point that on January 12th, 1839, shortly before his death, he wrote to a fellow pastor, May your mind be sobered, my dear friend, by the thought that we are ministers but for a time, that the Master may summon us to retire into silence. Therefore, make all your services tell for eternity." What was McShane saying? He was saying that our destination in death, heaven, and the eventual reigning of Jesus Christ for all eternity should make all of our lives and most certainly all of our worship declare exactly where we are headed. How do you think about heaven? Does it affect your life very much right now? Friends, see, the reality of the matter is that after our death, then comes destiny. Then comes our true destination. Earth is really the preparation chamber for eternity itself. And so the reality is, is that how we walk in this life should be affected by our fixed gaze on the reality that is not yet seen. That is the return of Christ and the future glory held out there. Just consider what the Bible tells us about even heaven right now. Well, Jesus himself taught us to pray in this way in Matthew 6, 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. So our Father is in heaven. Hebrews 9 we looked at just several months ago, 9:24. For Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So the Father is in heaven and Jesus Himself is in heaven. We'll get there in just a few weeks, but Hebrews 12, 23 tells us, And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, 
and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. What is this saying? This is saying that our brothers and sisters in the faith, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament, all of your friends and family who have died in Christ, all of God's people who are no longer here on earth are in heaven. That's not all. Luke 10.20 Jesus there tells us to rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So not only is our Father in heaven, not only is our Savior in heaven, not only are the souls of those who have gone before in heaven, but this morning if you are a Christian, you too have a title deed in heaven. It is a place for you. We read this morning from Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven. Even now, as you live here, you have citizenship in another place. And then 1 Peter 1, 3-4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You have a glorious inheritance there in heaven. Jesus again in Matthew 5, 11 through 12. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Why? Well, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. We put it all together. What do we find? And we could go on all day, but I won't. What do we find? We find in heaven is our Father. In heaven is our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In heaven, for Christians, there is a place where they go when they die. And for us who are still living, there is a deed, a citizenship, an inheritance, a reward that is being kept for us there. And so, friends, whether you realize it or not, if you're a Christian, anywhere else short of heaven is not home. For the Christian, everything that is precious to us in this moment is there for us in that very place. Everything that we cannot live without is kept there for us. Did we not just sing moments ago, Thy saints are crowned with glory great. They see God face to face. They triumph still, they still rejoice. Most happy is their case. Oh, when thou city of my God, shall I thy courts ascend, where congregations ne'er break up, and Sabbaths have no end. We've been looking in Hebrews at this very reality, we started it last week in thinking about Abraham, the great man of faith. He knew this reality of heaven also well. That's what our passage this morning is going to be about. This is why he's come to be known as the father of faith. Abraham, from his conversion at age 75 until his death at age 175, for 100 years he knew that everything in this life including the difficulties and the trials and the sorrows and even his own missteps were preparing him for eternity and for that place. In other words, his affections were captured by a better country. But the reality is that it wasn't always the case for Abraham. No, he was once a pagan moon worshiper. He worshiped the very creation. He was born to parents who did not fear God. And he was immersed in a life of false worship. So it was with some of you. Maybe it still is. But what happened to Abraham to change all of that? Well, we found last week that the Word, the very Word of the living God, the Creator of everyone and everything, came to Abraham in all of its transforming power. And as a result, at that very moment, he was called to go. And everything that had once mattered to him, everything that once had meaning to him, his friends, his family, his country, the land where he lived, he utterly abandoned it. Never to go back to that life again. 
We saw that God met Abraham with life-transforming grace that birthed in him a faith. A faith that, though it faltered from time to time, sometimes in, in very big ways, in the end it was always captivated by this glorious God who called him. His life was, was marked by faith in this God. So last week we came to see that this grace-produced faith expressed itself in, in very specific ways in his life and also in the life of his, his wife Sarah. And we're going to see next week in the life of his son and his grandson. You'll remember if you were here that we saw that the, really these three things that came out in, in Hebrews 11 there, verses 8 through 12, that number one, by faith we obey. We cannot truly obey God without faith. So it is by faith that we actually obey God. Then we saw it is by faith that we sojourn, that we, that we go, that our lives are marked into stepping into the new and out of the old. We'll explore this more today. But finally, last week we saw that by faith we receive the necessary power to live for God. Remember it was by faith that Sarah... And Abraham conceived, even when they were well past childbearing years. How is it that they conceived? They received power, power from the Holy Spirit Himself, the very first fruits of heaven itself. And they were able to conceive and have a child. And so we closed last week with verse 12 of Hebrews 11. Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now, whereas last week we considered where faith brings us, this morning we'll consider where our faith will take us, where it is we are destined to go. Or to put it another way, our passage today will reveal that it is by faith that we look and long for a home that is not here and not now. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews 11, looking at verses 13 through 16. If you didn't bring a Bible of your own or forgot yours, we do have some there in the pews in front of you. If you're new to the Bible, Hebrews 11, verse 13 is found on page 947 there in that pew Bible. When you get there, just look for that big number 11, then look for that little number 13. And that'll be where I begin reading in a moment. And as always, if, if you don't have a Bible or if you have a friend or a coworker who doesn't have a Bible, we do have Bibles in the foyer. We would love to give you as our gift to you this morning. Grab one on your way out. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16 and really see them break up into two parts. In verses 13 and 14, we'll see that by faith we are looking. And then in verses 15 and 16, we're going to see that by faith we are longing. So looking and longing are really the primary things we're going to see that come to us by faith. So as we return to Hebrews 11, let me invite you to stand once more in honor of the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of the Lord to us today from Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For he, people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared, prepared for them a city. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So two parts, two points really today. By faith we are looking and by faith we are longing. And as we look at each of these, my prayers that our lives, and I, I really mean this, this has been my prayer and it's my prayer for us right now, that our lives would be so fixated on heaven, our lives would be so fixated on the world that is to come, our eyes would be so fixated on the God who is there, on our Savior Jesus Christ, that our lives would always, as Robert Murray McShane longed for his life and the life of his friends, would always be fixed for eternity. So let's dive in and, and, and explore this and pray and ask God would do that in our hearts this morning. By faith we are looking. What do we mean here? We mean that true faith given to us by gracious God causes us to not look to this world but to the one to come. Look at verse 13 and See what we see there. 
It begins, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. He's talking about those just mentioned, these that he's mentioning here, Abraham and his wife Sarah and his son Isaac and his son, grandson Jacob and, and this idea that they were longing, they were looking for promises that they had not yet received. Now there's really two things that, that kind of float to the top of this reality. Number one, that their totality of their lives were lives of faith. You realize that, right? They, they, they never lived in a time of fulfillment. They never saw the fulfillment of the promises that God had made to them. Abraham never sees his descendants as innumerable as the sand upon the shore. He never sees it. It is uh, totally and completely a life of faith. In some ways, and, and I was talking to Pastor David about this this week, we, we tend to, I think it's sometimes not want to get too uh, what we may call moralistic about Hebrews 11 and saying that, oh, we're, we're supposed to be like them. We don't want to push that too hard. We want to live lives of grace. This is right and this is true. But why has the author of Hebrews given us this, this list of people? Primarily, why has he given us Abraham here in 11? Well, I think it is to help us see how we should live in light of faith. What our lives should be marked as. And it's not moralism to look at this and say, oh, that's how we should live as well. And, and so in some ways here, Abraham prefigured who we are as Christians. That Christians, we live with a promise of Christ's return. And we don't see that fulfillment yet. We live lives of faith not knowing the fulfillment yet. And all of those who have gone before, who have died, our, our friends, our family, who have passed away in Christ... They didn't just live lives of faith, but they died in faith as well. Because in their death, Christ didn't return in that moment. And so they had to die in faith. Is it exactly what we see here? To see that they have a faith just like ours. But the second thing here is, is this Greek phrase is a little bit more detailed simply than, than the way the ESV translates it here. That, that they they'd all died in faith. There's a little bit more to it than that. Literally, it could be translated, these all died in accordance with their faith. They all died in accordance with their faith. Not just living, not seeing a fulfillment, rather that death itself did not change their trust. That when they died, they died according to their faith. They didn't abandon God in their death. Their faith in life did not suddenly wane in death that they stepped into death itself with that same faith, that same confidence, that same assurance. And isn't this when our faith shines most bright? Now see how he builds on this truth. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Now, while they did not see the fulfillment of these promises, there is a sense in which they did take view of them. You see that there, right? That they did not see the fulfillment of all that God had promised Abraham. They had promised to give him these great descendants that multiplied upon multiplied. This land that he promised to give him, this blessing that he made him. They only saw them in part in their lives. And yet he says that in their lives of faith, they did see them. And that they greeted them from afar. Well, how so? What is he saying? It's that, it's that their faith given them, the faith that God Himself had supplied them, gave them a sense of being able to see that surpasses physical eyesight. It is a faith that gave them an internal sight, a, a spiritual sight, a spiritual mindedness, we might say, so that they welcomed them from afar. That, that phrase, from afar, it speaks of, of one moment that is, is way before another moment. So, so, so they greeted these things at one time when those things had not happened and would not happen for a long time. And friends, the reality, this idea of, of, of Abraham's seed blessing the nations, it's still finding its fulfillment even now. This is what the gospel itself does, that it goes to the nations. And so even that promise to Abraham has not yet been fully fulfilled. And so they greeted them from afar. In other words, these patriarchs, they saw and welcomed the promises of God long before God fulfilled them. It's, it's similar to thinking about a sailor, a sailor on a boat who's been sailing for, for a long, long time. And he gets to this place where he can see the shore, but he does not anchor there. Instead, he dies upon the boat 
seeing the shore to which he's going. So they took God at his word, that that shore that God held out for them was there. They could see the great work of God in their own mind's eye. They could imagine all the glorious works of God that would be associated with these promises, that they had eyes of faith. And because of that, it was so real to them that by faith they actually welcomed them. This idea of welcoming is this idea of of opening up with joy, of experiencing delight and bringing it in. In other words, their faith was so set upon God that His promises were to them as concrete as God Himself. This is reality we see throughout the Bible. He said that God's Word His promises are so sure that they are as concrete as God Himself. If God makes a promise, as Hebrews has already told us, He cannot lie. And so we may bank our very lives on those promises. As sure as the seat you're sitting in, or more sure than the seat you're sitting in. And so, upon receiving these these promises that God makes, They so knew that God would fulfill them that they welcomed them from far off. And they died in faith. Friends, here's the question for us. Is anything less expected of us who are Christians? Is anything less expected of us? Are we to look anywhere else besides the God of promise? Does His Word give us any other option? And yet... If we're, if we're frank, if we're honest about it, how often do we try to look at other ways for satisfaction, for, for pleasure, for joy? I mean, isn't this what a Christian is? Someone who longingly waits upon the promises of God? Yes, of course we know God's salvation in our lives now in part. But we do not fully know what it is to be perfect to be glorified, to have bodies that do not hurt and ache, to have mouths who only say sweet and kind things. We don't know that. We have not experienced that, at least not fully and unceasingly. And so the work of the Christian is the same as it is here, that by faith we live. And yet we see our weakness, don't we? Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. I mean, he's promised that in his old age he's even going to be given a son. Okay, let's do Abraham before Isaac comes, okay? He's promised by God that he's going to have a son. 100 years old. His wife's 90 years old. He's promised that, that they're going to receive a new homeland. They're going to receive a place, a place that, 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 that is a, a beautiful paradise. And that, that, that out of this, they're going to bless the whole world. And so he lives his life. Year after year. Decade after decade. The son is given. God fulfills that promise. But other than that, They never put down roots in Canaan. They're sojourners moving around. And how are the nations blessed? Not fully, not finally. Now, if you're in Abraham's shoes, don't you think you'd be a little bit bitter? Don't you? Not that you didn't believe God, not that you didn't trust God, not that you didn't continue following Him, but at the end of your life, laying on your deathbed, wouldn't you be like, come on, God. You could at least let me see a little bit more. How is it that they can all go to their graves with this joyful anticipation and hopeful expectation? To, to put it more simply, how is it that Abraham died not embittered at God, not at least a little bit angry and upset at God? How is it that he died with a welcoming joy in faith? We'll look at the final phrase of verse 13. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
literally here, they admitted that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. To be a stranger here means that you are unknown or that the place you are in is not your normal place of being. You're new there in some sense. To be an exile then means that you have left the place you once lived and find no rest in that place, whether you were expelled or, or, or chose to go. And what an odd thing to consider, that they admitted that they were strangers and exiles. But the reality, friends, is isn't this our ground? Isn't this our home? Strangers and exiles? Did, did they really believe this? Did they not believe that, that, did Abraham not believe that this was his home? That this is where God has brought me and this is where I put down my roots. Surely they didn't really think themselves strangers and exiles. Well, Genesis 23, which was read for us earlier, Abraham buying a plot to bury Sarah, who has recently died, in faith. This is what Abraham says to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Later in Genesis 28, Isaac refers to his son Jacob as an alien. Genesis 47, Jacob refers to his life as the years of my pilgrimage. What do we see here? Well, friends, we see that all of these men, without hesitation, acknowledged that they weren't really home here. All of them acknowledged, admitted that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Well, of course you say, because they hadn't entered the land of promise. Of course, of course they said this because you say, Pastor, well, of course they said that because, because they hadn't really put down roots. God hadn't fully given them that land that he had promised to give them. But friends, it goes so much deeper than that. He's not just saying they admitted that they were aliens and strangers while they lived by promise outside of the promised land. I mean, were they not living in that promised land when they called themselves sojourners and aliens and exiles and the years of their pilgrimage? Were they not living in that place where God would establish His people? He's saying something much bigger and, and very important for you and me. Look back at the verse. You may have skimmed right over it. They acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles where? On the earth. See, friends, at the end of the day, it wasn't that Palestine was their home and they hadn't apprehended it yet. Rather, it's that the entire world system, all of the created order in its present sense, was not their home and destination. All of the land, no matter where they would have found themselves, was not it. That life at its best in this world would always be passing and not as good as it was going to be. So we see that saying that they were strangers and exiles reveals something about them, don't you think? Well, yes, verse 14 tells us it does. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. What is being said here? If no place on earth would have settled for their homeland, what is he saying then? That those who say these things, these men and women said, show that they are seeking something that is not here. I love the way the New American Standard translates this verse. It says, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. I don't know if any of you know the term expatriate. Have you ever heard that term expat, expatriate? It's someone who has left their homeland, literally what is known here as the fatherland, either willingly or by force. And while they live as an alien in another country that is not their own, an expatriate would call themselves this because they long for their home. They love their home. It isn't that they just moved to another country because they got tired of the other one. It was that they've moved to their other country, but they long for that home. They long for their place. His heart is there. His affections are there. His devotion, his preoccupations are set on that place. The author of Hebrews is saying the very same thing, is he not? 
by referring to themselves as aliens and strangers and pilgrims. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob revealed something about their hearts, their attitudes, their perspective. Namely, that their lives were set upon somewhere other than where their feet currently stood. And there's a very specific application here that I don't want you to miss. As we begin to think about this idea of their, their, their affections, don't miss what verse 14 says. Look back there. It says that people who speak thus. It seems that the author of Hebrews here has done something that, that, that may go under the radar in most of our readings. And I don't want you to miss it because it, it's a very direct application. He's widened the circle a bit. Do you see that? He doesn't, he's not just anymore talking about Abraham. He's not just talking about Sarah or, or Isaac or Jacob. He says, people who speak in this way. So we reveal, we're reminded by Jesus himself, what's in our hearts by how we speak. He's saying that people who speak this way, people who desire this, people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And so the question I want to put to you is how do you speak? How do you speak? When you're talking to one another, You'll do so in just a moment after the service, as you fellowship together. Consider this. Do you speak as if this is home or that you're still looking for another one? When we speak to our children, parents, do we speak to our children as if this is home or we're looking for the one to come? Think about how we speak in our work environments. When you're speaking to a coworker or a boss who has really ticked you off, do you speak as if this is it? Or there's somewhere else you're headed? Even thinking about the things going on in the world around us right now, how do we speak about current events or a government official that we disagree with or this thing that happens in pop culture or this new trend or this new idolatry that rises up in our society. How do we speak about them? Do we speak as if this is home or we are looking for another one? See, friends, the reality for us all is that by nature, this is where our sin begins to express itself. That all of us are given, born with this sinful nature that longs to make this our home. It doesn't matter where your home is. That there is this thing in all of our hearts that can tend to creep up when something doesn't go the way we want it to or something is not right, that, that, that we tend to, to get angry or to get frustrated or to get anxious or worrisome. Because why? We are putting our feet, our anchors down here and now and making this our home. But what we see is that by faith, we see what is unseen and welcome what has not yet arrived. Through our very words. Now, you may think, well, if they were looking so much for this place, if they, if they were expatriates, why, did, why didn't they just go back to where they came from? If they were just longing for their home, why didn't they just turn around and go back? They, they weren't being held by anyone against their will. Why not just pack up and leave? Well, friends, it's because that's not the home that they wanted. Look back at verse 15, and let's see how by faith we're not only looking, but we are longing. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And we've been building the case now regarding what faith does to us, how it affects us, how it puts our eyes and, 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 and our lives looking toward what is to come. And we've seen how faith causes us to look at what has not yet arrived, and that looking now moves us to this reality. We don't just look 
as if it's some little exercise that Christians are supposed to do so we can be good little Christians that, that we just look to heaven and we look to the eternity and the new heavens and the new earth and that's just something we're supposed to do. No, that's not what we find here, is it, at all? We don't just look. But what does it say here? That grace-produced faith actually changes our very longings, our very affections. The word here, desires. But as it is, they desired. This is one of the most important words in all of the Bible. Don't, don't miss it because it gets at what God Himself redeems in sending Jesus Christ. He doesn't just redeem our hands and our feet. He doesn't just redeem us to some religious practices and traditions as, as if they're just these rote things that we're supposed to do until we get to heaven. He doesn't just redeem our minds. He redeems our very hearts as it is they desired. This is what the work of God in producing faith actually does in us. Too long, I believe, some of us have considered our faith as a matter of our own doing. That, that, that we all have just decided to follow Jesus, right? We, we even see this, I have decided to follow Jesus. This is, this is a reality. We do have to decide to follow Jesus. But, but too many of us have thought that this idea of faith is something of our own doing. It's something that we've mustered up or worked up in our lives of changing our own wills, our desires, and changing our affections. But we are reminded here that God is the one who woos and demands Woos and demands. Yeah, I learned something at the parenting conference. <laughs> Woos and demands our worship. See, before Abraham followed God, he was just a garden variety pagan. I mentioned this a moment ago. He was just, just a pagan like everybody else from the nations. Meaning that he worshipped not the God of creation, but the creation itself. In every way then, earth was his God. It was the God of his parents. It was the God of his friends. The world was his home. His family was in that place. His friends was in that place. His work was in that place. His social life was in that place. Everything about his life was earthly. But now we see this, that the grace of God invades his life. It calls him out, and he's willing to forsake everything. He's willing to leave everything he's ever known to wander and sojourn as an alien for the next 100 years? Most of us can't even imagine what 100 years looks like. And he was willing to leave everything for this? Why would you ever do that? Because this is the kind of faith, the kind of trust, the kind of working that God's grace produces, that God's calling and working in our life the effect that it has when He calls us out. And God's gracious work in calling us and saving us doesn't just make us nice and, and sweet people who have good manners. I hope those things are true for us. But we see here that God's grace actually changes our deepest core. It reorients our priorities. It causes us to actually sacrifice, to actually give up, to actually let go. It produces a very revolution of our affections. It causes us to hate sin and to love God, to the world, though it looks like we have given up everything to gain nothing. But to the Christian, we have given up nothing to gain everything. Was it not this truth that propelled Jim Elliot himself to go and to give his life? And he wrote in his own journal a summary of this amazing truth. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Friends, is it true of you? It's not that we become unearthly. Let me make this clear. It's not that we become unearthly. It's not that spiritually minded people are so disengaged with the world. Right? True Christians don't become so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. That, that, that's a straw man. That's a false paradigm for the Christian. It's not that we just disassociate with the world and we become separatists. That's not true biblical faith. That's not what we mean here. We don't become as odd as we possibly can for oddness sake. We are not to separate ourselves from the world. We, we are 
by the command of Christ to remain in the world, engaging with the world, addressing the world, living among those who are not of God, living among those who, who do not love Him, rubbing shoulders with those who spit in God's face for a very specific purpose. And that is to display His glory and display His beauty to those around us. But we are not to live in the world in such a way that the world and the things of it are what occupies our minds and our hearts. Or to say it as Hebrews does here, that our desire is for another world. It's for somewhere else. See, friends, the real question here is, are you consumed by the things of this world or the things of the next? Let's get real specific. When you lay your head down at night, do you rest knowing that no matter what troubles tomorrow brings, this is not your home? Do you lay down your head at night full of anxiety and worry for that day's troubles? Or do you rest knowing there is a sovereign God who is at work? When your mind wanders, does it find itself face down at the feet of a gracious God or off moseying through fields of withering flowers? And where is your faith after all? Friends, the reality for us, and this is how our hearts have to be reoriented, is that if we believe and have faith in Jesus Christ, this is how the New Testament describes you. May we pray that it becomes so. Peter begins his epistle this way. 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens. He continues on. And if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. And then Paul himself picks up the same truth in Colossians 3. We read it earlier. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not of the things on earth. So it all boils down to this. You will become what you love. You will begin to be molded by the thing that you desire most. And the very thing that you have set your heart upon, you will begin to mirror, to look like. Your affection finally then is in one of two places. Either you have your affection for heaven or your affection for this world. So how do we know? How do we know where our affection is truly placed? So I'm assuming most of you as looking at God's Word this morning and considering it, at least right now, you say, well, I want my affection to be in heaven. My affection is in heaven. As we've sung together, as we've prayed together and read God's Word together, my affection is in heaven. What happens tomorrow morning when your feet hits the ground? When we come to the fork in the road of our lives, of different circumstances, which path do you take? And we find this in, in everything from, from education to evangelism. We find this from, from how we spend our money to church membership. From, from what we let into our homes to what we use our homes for. As Augustine puts it in his book on this same idea, The City of God, he writes, For as the same fire causes gold to glow brightly and chaff to smoke, and so when the fire comes upon you, which city are your affections for? The one that is to come or this one here? In other words, it's not our circumstances that determine our faith, but our faith is displayed in where we put our hope in those circumstances. Consider it this way, maybe a little word picture. Consider there's a dog and a dog's following behind two men. And eventually those two men get to a fork in the road. One man goes down one path, the other man goes down the other path. Which way does the dog go? 
the dog will always follow his master. The reality, friends, is that in this world, when Jesus and the culture around us go hand in hand, we can follow Jesus all day long because the culture doesn't mind. The culture approves it. The culture gives us a thumbs up. But when we get to the way that we are today and the road that we're going down today, there is a split in the road. And Jesus will go towards heaven and the, road will go, the world will go towards hell. And the question is, which master will you follow? Which world will you live for? As James 4, 4 tells us, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friends, this is the kind of faith that Abraham had. It caused him to have affections for a better country. It, it, just follow the flow of the argument here. Scroll back up with me, if you will. Hebrews 11.10. How does it begin? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Come down to verse 14. The language gets a little bit stronger. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. So then he was looking forward. Now he is seeking. But what do we find in verse 16? The strongest language yet. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Friends, this is what grace-produced faith does. It directs our longings and our affections away from this world and toward heaven. And so the question is, is that the kind of faith that you have? Is this the kind of faith that you long to have? Friends, as if this was not enough to draw our longings, just knowing that there is a place such as heaven that exists, the author of Hebrews takes one final shot at hitting the very center of our hearts with one of the greatest truths in all of Scripture. Look at how our passage closes. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore... God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Do you realize the heart-shattering truth that we find here? That our faith in God arouses His very affections for us. That He is not ashamed to be called the God of Brenda Fraser. That he is not ashamed to be called the God of Derek Beasley. That he is not ashamed to be called the God of Charlie Jones. He is not ashamed to be called our God. What does God say to Moses from the burning bush? I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not ashamed to be called their God. This is who our God is. The God who names Himself with us. The God who attaches Himself to us. What more could poor, wretched sinners want or need than a God who condescends to us? This is what the gospel itself holds out. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. This is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Friends, do you realize that Jesus is the God who became man? He is the God who is not ashamed to take on our flesh, not to shame to take us up, to make us His own. And because of this, what is the great result? Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Who is it speaking of here? Who is this God that it's speaking of here? Well, friends, I think this is one of the most clear examples in all of Scripture that Jesus Himself is God. It's using Jesus' very language here to speak of God Himself. Did we not hear it earlier? Was it not our call to worship today? He told us, Jesus Himself told us what He was going to do when He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I was going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to Myself, that where I am you may also be, 
And you know the way to where I'm going. Friends, He is the way. This is who Christ is. This is the glory of the gospel. Not just that we're saved now in this moment, but that we are saved for all eternity. Friend, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, does your heart not burn within you to have such hope, to have such assurance and faith? This reminds me of how C.S. Lewis concludes the Chronicles of Narnia. The last battle is coming to an end. The very last paragraph of the book ends this way. I'll try to read it without getting too choked up. Speaking of Aslan, the great lion, was a figure of Christ in the story. It says, And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at least they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Friends, whether you realize it or not, this here, and all of the pain and sorrow, and all of the joy and the happiness is but the cover and the title page of the greatest story. The story where every chapter will be better than the one before. So I close by asking, how is your soul today? Do you know the weight and the glory of heaven? Do you look with eyes of faith in Christ and see the beauty that's held out for us? Will you take a hold of these sweet promises of heaven for you today or this week? And will you let the one who purchased all of this for you by his own death and made it sure by his resurrection, will you make him your own? And as we come to the table again this morning, does your heart look on and long for God in the better country where congregations ne'er break up? And Sabbaths know no end. Let us pray. God, as we come before you this morning, we pray and we ask, Lord, that you would fulfill your good promises to us, that you would so fixate our eyes on what is held out for us, that our lives would be utterly and completely transformed by that. Would you do the work that only you can in our hearts in giving us faith in you, that we may walk in your ways, that we may glorify you with our very lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.